Welcome to Victor's Children, a podcast from so-called Canada talking socialism from below. My name is David Campfield. I live with my partner and cat in Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is in Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of Anishinaabeg, Cree, Oja Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and the homeland of the Métis Nation. All those of us in the Canadian state who aren't Indigenous need to commit ourselves to the struggle against settler colonialism. Victor's Children is a member of the Harbinger Media Network, which is a community working to support and promote left podcasts in Canada. Check out other shows like Tech Won't Save Us, Anti-Girl Boss Socials Club, and Alberta Advantage. Uh, you can look at the show's list at harbingermedianetwork.com. The strike on Friday, November the 4th and Monday, November the 7th, 2022, of 55,000 education workers in Ontario belonging to the 67 locals of the Canadian Union of Public Employees grouped as the Ontario School Board's Council of Unions, or OSBCU, who were joined by several thousand education workers who belonged to the Ontario Public Service Employees Union, was a very important struggle. Arguably, this was the most important strike in so-called Canada since the Hospital Employees Union strike in British Columbia in 2004. Joining me to discuss the strike is Peter Hogarth, a teacher in Ontario and author of an article, Who Killed Bill 28? Ontario Workers and the Threat of a General Strike, the link for which will be in the show notes for this episode, along with links to a couple of other relevant articles. I should just also mention that in the episode, in the conversation with Peter, I did misspeak slightly about the dates of the strike, but the correct dates were, in fact, November 4th and 7th. So, Peter, thanks for joining me on Victor's Children. Thanks for having me. That's fun. So could you start by telling listeners, you know, many of whom are not in Ontario, uh, who the workers who went on strike are and what the key issues were in their efforts to bargain a new collective agreement? Absolutely, yeah. So when we're talking about uh, who is represented um, or who were these workers, it would be kind of, in many ways, like a simple way to say it would be everyone but teachers, kind of. Um, But of course, that varies by school board um, that you're in. But we can say that for the most part, these were workers that were, um, you know, custodial services, um, building maintenance services, um, educational assistants, um, many early childhood educators in kindergarten classes and stuff like that, um, like clerical and I guess you'd call it an office administrative type stuff. Um, and then also some people that worked in like the librarian, sorry, library resources and like technology, like IT departments. And so it covered a large group of um, workers of various capacities um, and uh, that were not teachers, many in the class, um, but all of them were or are essential to, you know, making schools safe and successful for students. Great. And in terms of the key issues in this round of bargaining, what were they? Well, it seemed like the issues that most motivated um, the members, and uh, this was done based on, you know, I think, well, first of all, I should say that the um, OSBCU definitely, um, since 2019, as Laura Walton said, um, had been trying to really employ like a member-to-member grassroots uh, communication process where they could really get people, you know, involved and have them expressing what issues were most important to them. And one that was really animating and the one that sort of was most obvious um, to the public would be the one of pay. Because effectively for like, I guess the last, oh geez, maybe decade, they'd essentially experienced what would be called like, you know, an 11% cut in wages, like in real terms, you know, based on inflation and stuff like that. because their wages had been capped um, and they'd received very small uh, wage increases over the last several contracts. So wage increases were very big. And the, and specifically, the demand that became popularized was $3.25 an hour for all the members. And they were specifically trying to avoid like um, percentage-based increases because that would increase the you know the inequity or the pay disparity between the highest paid members and the lowest paid members in the bargaining group um so that was one big one and then others that were important were trying to secure language around um around uh maintaining like for instance services in terms of you know like 
hiring offices, hiring office uh, staff, making sure that every kindergarten class had an ECE, um, ensuring that there were more EAs available to do work. And then as well, things around, you know, making sure that cleaning happened every day and stuff like that and avoiding contracting out and, um, you know, and, uh, and then also maintaining um, benefits and benefits funding and um, what's the other thing called um, and, you know, sick leave and stuff like that. So those were the, those were the main issues from what I understand. And of course we, the one that I think motivated members the most was uh, wages. And that's obvious to people that are in schools because we know many people that we work with um, in that job category are often, you know, leaving school to go work another job on the evenings or weekends. Okay, thanks for that. So could you talk a little bit more, you touched on this, but could you talk a little bit more about how the leaders of the OSBCU prepared for the strike that ultimately happened? Um, From what I understand, um, based on like, what Laura Walton said, and uh, in Spring Magazine, they did. We did an interview with her that um, you know shed some light on this. They they got a lot of um, a lot of inspiration from the New Brunswick um, education workers strike. I guess that was just before 2019. I can't remember for sure, but that was a strike against a conservative government that did uh, win a lot. And um, I think members of OSBCU were out there. Um, and got to witness that and sort of took a lot from that. And I think there was also a bit of that, like a lot of people I know in education circles and uh, education union circles were reading um, that book, No Shortcuts, I think it's called, and some of those other Jane McAlevey books. And those were inspirations too, I think, as far as what they wanted to achieve in terms of like member-driven um, member driven uh, unionism, you know what I mean? Kind of going against the the same old, same old that we're probably familiar with where, you know, you know, someone on high says such and such, and you go either go, oh, good, or go, oh, darn, and that's the end of it. And so it seemed like a real dive into locals to try and get people activated there. And um, a lot of like surveys and communication and opportunities to talk to members about what, you know, what their experience was like on the job, and what they were willing or, you know, ready to fight for. Um, and that uh, that resulted, I think, in, you know, the demands and the confidence that you saw in sort of like, you know, the 39,000 is not enough campaign that was launched, you know, ahead of far ahead of when um, far ahead of when the contract expired um, and sort of a confidence that came from, you know, really clearly articulating like who we are, like we want to we want to represent who we are um, to the public, what we do and, you know, the conditions of our work and how they could be better. And by making them better, you'd improve the learning conditions for the whole province. And I guess making the case that like, this is, you know, this is a fight for actually this, you know, the soul of public education in Ontario. Um, what do we want? Do we want it understaffed, understaffed, precarious, and, um, you know, on call and maybe not, not, not filled in, or do we want something really robust that, uh, that uh, is actually meeting the needs of students? Um and I guess maybe that's a slight diversion from what you're asking, but uh, from what I can tell, based on um, interactions with you know members from different locals, it sounded like um, that approach really led to lots more engagement. And I think we saw that, and this might be um, anticipating a future question, but we really saw that in the turnout and the uh, strike vote that happened um, on, uh, I guess it was, shoot, when was it? Early October. Um, that was a real indicator of how involved and tapped in the membership was into, you know, into the demands and the strike and all that type of stuff. So that was really exciting. And I think a reflection of that kind of, you know, what do they call it? People often call it like deep organizing or something like that. But really that that attempt to get get into the members and, and talk to talk to them in a in a meaningful way where they can actually see themselves reflected in in bargaining. Right. So an extremely high uh, turnout and an extremely high vote uh, above all uh, to uh, to authorize a strike. Uh, and so that was being done inside the union. Oh, and I should just mention for any listeners who don't know that Laura Walton is the, the president of the OSBCU, uh, since that name has come up. Um, so that's inside the union. What about outside the union? What was being done by people to build support for the union? Ooh, good question. Yeah, this is uh, an area I feel like I can speak on quite well because um, I've only been teaching in the public school board for the last couple of years, but before that I was involved with, uh, and I still am, Justice for Workers and what was called before that Fight for 15 and Fairness, which um, if we think about it from like, you know, the last few years, because you got to step back and it's like, you know, obviously decades are happening in uh, weeks here, but 
uh, in this case, the last few years when we had uh, a pandemic and that turned to like, you know, uh, lockdowns and stuff like that, that was kind of, you know, of course that could have meant, um, I don't know, it could have been really bad for, for organizing and like the lead up to this moment, right. When, you know, people are sort of atomized and in their homes and not able to do the things they usually do. And so I was really grateful. And I think we're lucky that, uh, the, um, justice for workers campaign kept, you know, kept with quite frequent organizing online, like in a virtual space, um, trying to just trying to see what could be done safely amidst, you know, um, this global pandemic where we could still push on things like decent wages, um, like liability for employers for workplace um, accidents, paid sick days, obviously being an important one in that moment. And because we kept meeting um, online frequently uh, and, and uh, those were all, we, uh, we started doing these joint meetings with the OFL. That was a really cool place where not only were we maintaining that type of organizing, but building this sort of, you know, being a, being a place where people could plug in, to issues around labor and and safety at work and stuff like that. And by doing that, it was an opportunity to create sort of or strengthen sort of not not a not in the, the traditional sense we might we might want or hope, but like a sort of rank and file worker network that involved, you know, unionized and non-unionized workers um, talking about these issues, going into breakout groups around things like employment insurance, um, safety in the job, which um, had a lot of education workers in it. And then talking about childcare, which was an opportunity to link up with, you know, ECs and stuff like that, that were maybe outside the public board or inside the public board and creating an opportunity where we could kind of make some of these connections, um, you know, as, as best you could across the province, which put us in a good position for when this kind of opportunity came up. Um, recognizing that, oh, geez, well, we've been meeting a lot. We're talking about safety. We're talking about decent work. This is a really important um, struggle. The, the education workers' struggle is a really important struggle in the battle for decent work. And because we'd been meeting regularly and had practice of like, you know, for instance, you know, going into our communities and doing things like putting up posters, uh, talking to people on street corners about, you know, decent work issues, safety at work, paid sick days, et cetera. It made us, re- we had sort of the, the bones or the, the networks to be able to, when, um, you know, they take the strike vote, we go, oh, geez, we've got to paint this province purple in solidarity, right? And what does that mean? We had, uh, you know, all of us were, actually, it was funny because like, at first it's like, oh, geez, is anyone going to pick up this, uh, this, um, this call? Like, will, will people, when we put out the call, like, hey, does anyone want to put up posters in support of education workers? Who needs materials? Like, oh, maybe one or two came. All of a sudden, you know overwhelmed with uh, requests for posters and stuff like that. And then because you have people in all these different neighborhoods and cities and towns across the, across the province, it's easy to go, okay, we'll send you some posters or you print some out, put them around your, um, put them around your school. And then in the lead up to, or sorry, post strike vote, let's get out there and be at, you know, drop off or pick up of these schools and talk to parents about, um, what's going on, sign them up, uh, you know, and a pledge to say, I will show solidarity to such and such workers, um, to, to the, to the striking QP workers. Um, and that put us in a real good spot to be able to spread that solidarity. And those posters that were created ended up being used in like, you know, every staff room, right? Like, uh, you know, there's some schools that I work in regularly and others that I fill in for, and every staff room I'd go to had those kind of purple, um, we support, uh, education workers uh posters and it became a way to it, it was by acting quickly you could uh anticipate by anticipating what what the fault lines would be and acting quickly it armed people to be able to express solidarity and then win over other people that might have been on the fence and give those people that were you know solid you know solid in terms of you know union solidarity um the give them the uh the stuff they needed to be able to win over other people and make it easy to 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 get on board and and then you started having these solidarity selfies um, with, you know, people that were, were teachers or education workers being like, I'm going to take my school and we're going to we're going to get a selfie and we're going to send it in and say we support. And just just many different ways to be able to show that solidarity that which then, you know, we saw uh, reflected in high public support for the strike um, and or for the for the bargaining and then eventual strike. All right. So that's given people, I think, a good sense of what was happening inside and outside the union. Let's talk about the other side. What stance did the uh, the Tory government, provincial government of, of Doug Ford, take when it came to bargaining with education workers? 
Oh, yes. Well, they had been very publicly bargaining in extremely bad faith uh, throughout, or sorry, you know, bargaining in public, but not bargaining at the table um, over the summer when, you know, for instance, OSBCU had really like made the case that like, wow, we want to really get this, uh, get this bargaining done before, before our contract expires and before, before school starts, because we do not want to have any, any interruptions in learning. Well, of course, the, the Tories throughout the summer kept doing the whole thing where it's like, oh, you greedy teachers again. It's these greedy teachers, like, you know, completely um, trying to obscure who the actual workers were, are what they were demanding, and then trying to, you know, do the classic, like, uh, you know, these are sunshineless teachers that just want, you know, what X, Y, Z, and we shouldn't take them seriously. They're going to bankrupt the province, et cetera. You know what I mean? Just really bad faith stuff over the whole summer until the very last minute. And then they start bargaining after the contract expires. And then again, saying one thing in public around, you know, the generous, uh, generous offers they're making. And then in reality, you know, stalling at the bargaining table, um, offering, you know, pennies, uh, compared to what they're asking, they try to do a, a two-tiered thing to kind of split the the lower wage workers from the higher wage offering. I think it was 2.5 or something to yeah 2.5 percent I think to those making under 40k and then 1.5 to those making over 40k and actually see from what I from what I can tell taking some shots at um, benefits and paid sick leave and stuff like that, basically forcing the the workers to have to, you know, take a strike vote and go on strike. Um, and then in the, after that, all after all that uh, stalling and stuff like that, you know, as they had been through the whole thing, like, oh, our number one thing is we don't want to disrupt school. We just want kids in school. Became this sort of hollow phrase where it's like, we well, want kids in school, but do you want any anybody in there? Like what happens in the school? It's clear yeah. that you don't really care about what happens in the school. You just want them in there. Um, and that was, I think, on full display, especially at, at the beginning when you could see, um, you know, when you had this robust public support and people were really questioning him. It was nice to see that every time Steph, Stephen Lecce um, posted something on Twitter, there'd just be this wild ratio of, you know, hundreds of people interrogating, you know, what he's saying and asking about what's going on and stuff like that um, to the point. So so with all that and then just stalling at the table, eventually to the point where OSBCU um, after this huge strike vote, as you said, 84% turnout, 96% um, voting in favor of a strike said, well, we're going to, we're putting our five days notice in where we will strike if you don't, you know, if you don't meet us anywhere on these demands, right? Like you're, it's quite clear that you're not serious at all. Well, as soon as that happened, then the Tories, like, or, um, I think obviously wrongfully uh, assuming what would happen and that they'd have the public on their side with these greedy public sector unions that want to, you know, sabotage the kids' futures. Obviously I'm speaking sarcastically here um, that they would support the next uh, keeping, what is it called? I think it was bill 28 keeping students in school act or something like that. Um, (laughs) So obviously like, just the most, you know, the most ridiculous title for the most ridiculous bill, which essentially um, made criminal their right, their right to strike would force a contract through on them. Uh, the one it's like, we're going to, you're going to take the one we offer and you're not allowed to strike about it. And here's uh, what is it? Section 33, I think it's called the notwithstanding clause so that you can't do anything about it and you can't challenge it. So they were really seemed really confident. You know, they had these 5 a.m. sessions where they could, oh, they could all get up at the crack of dawn to come in and vote this thing. They were laughing, backslapping, having a good old time. Well, they faced immediate backlash for that um, because it seemed quite clear to the public that this was an absolutely overstepping boundaries, like completely trampling on uh, their democratic right to collectively bargain. It felt like even if you didn't have that exact idea or that language, it felt like really nasty bullying. And especially when the union had quite clearly made this case that these are some of the lowest paid workers in the school system. And the other thing is like, if you're looking, you know, for a highly racialized and like quite predominantly um, workforce, a workforce predominantly made up of women, this is, you know, this is that. And so it, it had that extra added layer of real nasty bullying to it. And they faced immediate backlash for it. Um, the OFL, luckily, like, you know, people could sense this type of thing, right? And the OFL could see, you know, obviously, this is like a threat to union to, to unions in general, right? And they organized quite quickly a, um, 
like a night of action where people could come out and you had a few thousand people come out uh, to the Ministry of Labor and, you know, shout and come together there, marched over to Queen's Park. And it was the case where it's like, holy cow, like this is this is really something people are very, very angry. The next night, I know Justice for Workers had a, um, a phone zap sort of thing where we called you know, just about every, every conservative politician. And we had, there was like 600 people out to it. The next night there was a a parent's action outside uh, the Sheridan, I guess, where they were doing their bargaining. And there was hundreds of parents there. Um, And you could see the anger from all different sectors of the union. Anyway, I I might've just uh, jumped ahead, but it was quite clear that to that Doug Ford and the Tories, you know, really overstepped with their reaction after being so nasty the whole time. And then there was immediate uh, backlash from from the public. Right. So this very heavy handed uh, piece of legislation with the invocation of the clause in the Constitution, which would protect the legislation against any legal challenge, the, you know, the notwithstanding clause, which made it a generalized threat uh, to uh, to unions. Since this hasn't been done before, the invocation of that uh, clause in in this kind of context. So uh, we then saw the workers defy this legislation and go on strike uh, on the 5th of November. And they had a very large amount of public support. Uh, I think you've done a good job of explaining why that was the case. Um, It's interesting, there was an article, again, it'll be linked in the show notes for anybody who hasn't seen it, uh, published in The Breach by Martin Lukash and Emma Paling, um, which in the course of their investigative journalism, they uh, bring up that apparently there was pressure from top officials of QP National on the OSBCU not to go on strike, but Despite that additional internal pressure, the the strike began on the fifth of November, and it's interesting. One Ontario government official uh, was quoted on CTV News saying, "We didn't really think they just they'll they'll just say we'll strike illegally. We just didn't take that into account." So whether that's true or not, uh, certainly it appears that uh, they were the government was was caught off uh, off guard by the, the determination of the uh, the union leadership in this case, and of course by the very strong support of, of members and other people. Could you talk about how things began to unfold then once the picket lines went up on the 5th of November? Yeah, for sure. And I should talk about a little bit, I should just say the mention sort of the week ahead too. As soon as the the, the legislation was introduced, you could hear rumblings everywhere. Of course, you know, I'm trying to be inv- as involved in all this stuff as I can. And you could see on every different sort of, uh, you know, uh, teacher and education worker discussion board, um, people arguing about what what needs to be done how can people show support um you had teachers getting you know really outraged like how are they trying to make us you know and in every staff room people talking about are they like what kind like are we going to be crossing a picket line if we do this i won't do that and you know this what can be done who can we do and then people having you know people doing their best to have conversations to really get on the get on the phone or the email or whatever to to their local union reps and stuff like that and demand like we need to be in solidarity here we need to do something and it seems like they got tons of tons of pressure from that and and it was interesting too because i remember it was like i think it was halloween when that sort of came out and already i was out you know trick-or-treating with uh, my kids and their one of their friends parents was uh, an electrician and she started talking about oh geez like I know what happened to our union with a uh, with you know uh, a no strike clause and that it, it hasn't been good for us and well, this is awful what the government's doing and then I started hearing from other friends in different unions construction unions and stuff like that talking about well our our leadership says we we might have to do something about this you know what I mean and you could really get the sense that that people were feeling the pressure both the leadership itself of course because this is again a threat to like their very existence right if if, if they if the government can do this to to education workers well they can why can't they do that to to the rest of us and you got the sense that there was lots of pressure especially from people that are like you know tapped in and thinking about this type of stuff that they were really getting active and trying to activate you know people around them to like hey can you send an email here can you talk about this um at our union meeting can you do this you know what i mean what can we do to support um and that stuff started to really steamroll and i think the you know, the leadership felt that pressure about their very existence. And they also felt the pressure from the members that we have to be seen to be doing something here. Otherwise, what is the point of being a, being a union or whatever? You know what I mean? Uh, and it was exciting. I guess I should t- say the BC Federation of Teachers, they had their some meeting and they voted to donate a million dollars to the fund. And you got the sense that you know, you know, in schools, of course, you talk to, to people that are in the in these jobs and they're worried, right? And scared. And 
and people aren't used to feeling strong and powerful. Um, people aren't feeling used to feeling, feeling very strong and powerful, right? Like I'm just one, you know, janitor at this school. What do I do? You know, what, you know, but all of a sudden when you like, of course, uh, when you went down to, let's say Queens park on the day, you had tons and tons of people that were starting to really feel their power. Right. And being like, Holy cow, this is something like there's thousands and thousands of us. We're out here. We're proudly saying on our um, signs, like what I do, you know what I mean? You can see people grabbing pens and writing down, like I'm a, you know, custodian. I'm a speech language person. I do, you know, ESL stuff. I'm an ECE and like wearing that on their chest and marching in front of Queens Park in this place that just voted to like not care about them in any way. Um, starting to feel that power and feel like an indignity around like what the government had done and, and demonstrating that strength. And I think like when Laura Walton goes on the news and says, well, we're going to strike. Who cares? You know what I mean? Like we will strike. So they say we can't. Well, we're going to. You know what I mean? We're going on a or day of political protest or whatever you call it. And that was a real real wild thing everyone i know that's like even like remotely political you know because we have all these conversations it's calling and talking about oh is this going to be a general strike we have to have a general strike are we going to have a general strike what do we do and i could see people in my little orbit that are you know teachers and stuff like that and uh going from being like oh geez i hope you know like two weeks ago being like oh geez i hope nothing happens like i don't want you know, I, I don't want any disruption, but what do I do without my, you know, ECE and stuff like that to going like this government has gone too far and this is awful. Like I will not do a single day of class without an ECE in my class, you know what I mean? Or without my EA or whatever. And and the also the funny thing too is that many teachers too <laughs> were spurred to even more solidarity because it's like online learning, I hate it. We gotta win this thing. We're not gonna do that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, I've had enough of that. So all these different things coming together to make people really go on side and even people and people that weren't, you know, because of course, everywhere you go in every workplace, there's people that are like, Oh, are they asking for too much? Oh, this will, this is not good for the province that, you know what I mean? Have those people, at least though it was the kind of momentum where those people felt less confident to be making those arguments because the force of, you know, the force of nature was <laughs> sort of on the other side and was at least sympathetic, if not outright, solidaristic or whatever towards the struggle and in general being like well this is an existential threat to my um livelihood as a xyz whatever it is could be a could be a plumber could be a teacher whatever if they take away this right to uh if they take this right away this right to strike especially with so many other education um units um set to that are, that are bargaining this year too right so it's even more prescient um so there's that kind of vibe and then yeah. And so you just had people feeling, feeling powerful um, and, you know, feeling confident because especially they'd said, we're, we're on your side. And then you had like, a, sorry, I so much to talk about, geez. But, um, and then you had that really great move by OPSU saying, Hey, if any, if any education, if people, we encourage you to walk out today in solidarity, OPSU workers, um, we'll have your back with fines and stuff like that. And now of course it's not like instantly every single education worker in OPSU walk across the province walked out, but, the threat of that forced school boards that were going to stay open because they don't have that many QP staff, right? Like to close because, you know, the people that do those jobs, do the, do the QP jobs in that board were the OPSU people. So it's like, oh, geez, well, yeah, we can't, we can't run. So we're going to close too. And so you had at least two other school boards that were going to stay open, have to close because of that, because of that threat. And so that was huge and gave, I think, confidence and inspiration to so many other unions to be like, holy cow, if OPSU can do, is doing this, we better do something. And that's why I think, that weekend, which I guess is that weekend you had, I guess, what do you call it? The OFL executive board or something like that, whatever their highest decision-making group or whatever come together and have emergency meetings. I think that were quite, you know, quite contentious around what should we do? Um, and they eventually voted um, to have, let's have a political day of action uh, strike or whatever political day of action the, the, a week from that Saturday uh, into unlimited general strike uh, afterwards. And all the all the whatever representative people voted on that. And then you had those people going, oh, geez, we better get out and start having emergency meetings with with like, you know, teachers and with all our different groups um, to see if we can if we can make that happen. Right. Because we've said it and we got to let's see, can we are, are people on board? Let's go and, and talk to the members and get their feedback. So, right. This is that's very helpful in terms of giving a sense of what was going on on the weekend of the 6th and 7th of, of November. And I just want to underline, I think something that often gets lost after the fact, um, when we look back on events like this, and that is just how fluid the situation was, right? And certainly I think you, what you've been describing speaks to that. 
it's not the only time this has happened, but in, in these kind of moments of, of struggle where large numbers of workers are moving into action, they're feeling their collective power, uh, and particularly when they're defying the law. And so previous rules that seem to be just taken for granted or inevitable are being transgressed. There can be this real um, openness, right, and unpredictability about the situation where things that people previously had not been willing to contemplate or th that they thought was not possible um, now being something that could be considered uh, in terms of solidarity action, which is also law-defying, right, by other groups of workers uh, to support this larger group of workers who have defied the law and gone on strike. So then we come, we come to Monday, November the 8th. Can you talk about what happened on that day, which was obviously very important? Yeah, for sure. That's one of those days where, like, of course, as just some rank-and-file guy, um, you know, I'm watching it, and I felt a little bit, you know, <laughs> you know, I was like, I remember hearing, you know, hearing that, like, because, you know, this is, you know, we're in this thing, right? Like, I, we're, we're in this. And, and you know, I feel a lot of, um, God, like, I, you know, I want to win. And I can see, you know, as a, you know, as a person who's using deeply involved in this type of stuff and politics and all that type of stuff, I'm thinking like, oh, my God, like, we have to win this or we have to come away with with something here, right? And it's really nerve-wracking. And so I remember when someone called me that was uh, familiar with this type of stuff and said, like, they're going to have, you know, they're they're thinking about calling an unlimited general strike, I was like just weeping because I was like, oh my God, we're we're actually going to do something, right? Like this, this, yes, like we're we're rising to the historic moment, like as a labor movement, you know what I mean? Um, and so with that in mind, I'm like, okay, I couldn't wait till the till the press conference on Monday, right? Of course, just on the edge of your seat. And at this point, like, you know, there's not much I can do. We're just sitting here. Like I, you know, I don't, I don't, I wasn't scheduled to work on a Monday either. So I was just, you know, hanging out watching. I was, uh, of course, at home with my kids, actually, who were not at school. Um, and we were all, you know, watching these results. And then you get the announcement that Ford is going to have a press conference ahead of time. And I'm like, oh, good. Oh, goodness. What is this going to be? Right. And for a second, when he had his press conference, it sounded like he was going to double down. Right. And be really nasty, like the way he because, you know, he's kind of like sneak dissing and like being kind of rude to the to the workers and stuff like that, getting in his usual digs. And I thought, oh, my God, is he really going to double down? This is going, this is going to be disastrous for him. And also, like, this will light a fire, I think, under the whole the whole um, movement. But, of course, I guess, because he can, he, you know, those guys can sense the sense the moment, too. And from what I understand, there was a lot of dysfunction and disagreement within the um, the caucus, the Tory caucus around what to do and people getting mad at this heavy handed approach they'd taken, especially when they're trying to cultivate, you know, good relationships with, you know, some of these, some of these construction unions and stuff like that and different unions like that. So they quite, you know, astutely, I guess, um, you know, stepped down and said, you know, we will repeal this thing, you know, we overstepped, oh geez, you know, I just wanted to keep kids in school, you know, all this, you know, the usual stuff. Um, and of course doing that puts the whole, <laughs> the whole other side, our side, um, in a weird position, right? Well, like, okay, well, that's rescinded. And and sorry, and, and saying that he would rescind it and then kind of making the, the condition that I'll rescind it now, QP, you be cool and take down your take down your strike or you call off your strike or whatever. So of course, that is a real um a real uh, I don't know what's the word, like monkey wrench in the in the whole thing. Um where all of a sudden now it's like, okay, so what is what is it? Cause because we cause the 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 public and you know, you can see those um those polls that said, you know, 50% or more people support more unions joining in, 71% of the whatever the public say Ford is is uh, going too far and is bad and stuff like that. Okay, but now they were, they're saying they're going to rescind the legislation. And that, you know, again, it, it just makes it a bit more complicated, I think, for what to do next. Now, then you had um, this hour or so where everyone's like, ooh, and uh they were you know the the OSBCU people and stuff like that and other representatives of different unions were whatever I'm sure talking over all sorts of stuff and then came back and you know said woo this is a victory and, and of course it was a huge victory to be able to challenge that legislation beat it and have it stricken from the record so it the fines aren't even a thing right like it's a it, that's the thing we have to remember is that's like a very historic huge thing which hopefully we can talk about how historic it was a bit later but then you did have the case where it's like, okay, well, we'll take our, down our lines and we'll go back to the bargaining table. Um, and that's what happened there. Sorry, I guess because for the for the record. Um, 
And of course, then you had lots of people wa- watching and going, oh, how do I feel about this? Geez, what what happened? You know what I mean? And, and so I guess that's kind of the Monday. Yeah. And uh, it was very dramatic. Um, interestingly, that article I mentioned by uh, Martin Lukash and Emma Paling um, in it, they wrote, according to sources familiar with the conversation, uh, that is a conversation that took place between um, Laura Walton and uh, top QP officials, uh, Walton felt cornered. Um, it's also worth mentioning that the decision to end the strike was made by uh, those you know, leaders. Not There was no actual vote by um, the workers on the decision to re- fold up the picket lines uh, after the Monday and, and return to the classroom. So I think we should now take a you know, step in a slightly different direction and um, talk about why things played out the way that they did, how we explain this. And you've talked a little bit about um, some of that, uh, but if we want to with, with hindsight, with, with some distance, answer that question of why things ended the way they did. How, how would you answer that question to start with? Yeah, good. That is a that is the question, right? Of course, because you know we we can all be excited about all the different stuff, and and we can also be disappointed. So it's inter- it's interesting, right? Because it is the this is a real study of contrasts. Because on the one hand, I remember feeling you know deflated for a second, and then thinking about how historic what was accomplished was. And so I just wanted to go to think about what are the, the amazing things that happened. So like having Laura Walton go on TV and say to everybody, like, we are defying the strike. We'll pay for it. Who cares? This is political. Let's go. And then the whole province essentially rising to the challenge and bringing the threat of a general strike to the government is something that is so powerful and amazing. Because if we think about when we, and I'm sure, and I know you've written about this in books and stuff, like. We think about the deficits of the labor movement over the last long period, right? Like having, bringing back the language of solidarity, the feeling of, you know, like the, the, you know, the language and the idea of a general strike to have it go from something that, you know, a few people will yell, you know, we should have a general strike, you know, every, every two weeks, but to have it something that was actually in play and actually possible based on the deep organizing and commitment and strength of this 55,000 group, you know, 55,000 strong group of workers, um, again, who are predominantly women in this sort of, uh, in sort of, you know, this sort of caring, caring, uh, what do you call it, like caring economy, I don't know what, you know, those type, type of jobs, that's pretty spectacular to the point where it's like, you know, you have all these construction unions that, you know, in the past had uh, supported Ford and stuff like that, or, you know, some of them had said, ah, he's not so bad, or, you know, we, we're for this project. To have them come out and be like, ho, 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 you've gone too far. We are back in these education workers. We will walk off the job, you know, all this type of stuff um, based on an idea around like an attack on one is an attack on all. And this, this fight, for, you know, an injury to this group will actually have an effect on all of us. And we can't let that stand. That's just so huge and amazing and powerful. And to defeat that legislation is such an accomplishment. And it was interesting too, I should just aside, because, you know, after the, the strike or the lines or whatever came down and people were back at work, I made a point to go into the, into my job and make sure to thank every uh, QP employee or, you know, or what a QP represented worker in the building uh, and thank them for their bravery and the kind of, you know, just to underscore the kind of importance of what they'd done. And, and it was, it was amazing to hear those people, a lot of them, you know, work had conflicted opinions but they all for the most part felt 10 feet tall and i heard one person say like i just felt so powerful because this was a group of women that just stood up to this bully government and said no i don't think so like you're not gonna it's not gonna happen right and they were you know they were feeling their power and feeling 10 feet tall however that's not like not every worker was feeling that in, it, it, exclusively right many were frustrated right thinking that why when we had all this power why did we why did we you know, take down the lines and give that up. And that's, I think in hindsight, we can probably say that was probably a tactical mistake to, to, to have, you know, to have that government on the ropes and then not and then, and then sort of go back to business as usual when you had all this momentum may not have been the best, um, the best plan. And, and maybe they, you know, you can obviously you're dreaming here where it's like, Oh, they could have won everything. And, and then some, you know what I mean? Um, so I think in hindsight, we could say that. Why is it the case that, for instance, let's say both, you know, let's say union leaders, like, you know, those people that maybe that, you know, in that article said, you know, put pressure on Laura Walton to to feel a certain way. Why wasn't there, why wasn't, you know, it uh, voted on by, you know, the membership? Why couldn't we get a vote on the membership? You know, stuff like that. What's the root of that? Why isn't that the case? And I think 
you know, part of it goes to what we were talking about or what I, sorry, what I was talking about a second ago is that, you know, a lot of this stuff is, is uh, we're at a practice, right? We're talking about um, a labor movement that, that isn't as so familiar with the language of, you know, with these big moments and the, and this type of, uh, this type of democracy and, and, uh, and resistance and solidarity and stuff like that. And so it's the case that, you know, it's a, the general strike and the fluidness of it means that, you know, at one point, we're relying kind of on, you know, union leaders to call the general strike. But then we're in that same position that when it's time to call it off, it's like, oh, geez, those people still have, you know, the power to do that. Right. And so I think at base, at at its core, you know, from my perspective, as a person who believes in like, you know, rank and file unionism and all that type of stuff, we need to take this opportunity to build stronger, more political and, you know, more, uh, you know, like, class conscious uh rank and file networks of unionists who can you know who who can help have these arguments about what should be done next how to do it um can help you know bring together different groups different you know different layers of workers have that sort of you know class-wide picture of what it means to win and resist um and i think if you have that and or you have more of that then there's less possibility that you know, a decision can can be made without um, consulting all of the workers beforehand. Um, and yeah, and so I, I guess at root of of why why you know we are where we are, and, and there is like something, and there is an, an amount of disappointment to go along with the huge historic excitement. I'd say that's that's probably why, right? Like we need to build you know stronger stronger politics and uh, connections within our unions and, and between other unions, I'd, I'd say, probably. And I really agree with the, the conclusion about that kind of in, the importance of that kind of independent organization of, of workers. Uh, and I think the ability of workers to, when necessary, act independently of the official union structures is, is really crucial, right? So having activists and, um, who are organized before struggles break out um, in a way uh, with the kind of um, connections and respect that would make it possible to take independent initiatives uh, when they feel that the people in the official leadership positions are taking the struggle in the, the wrong direction and not, not doing what needs to be done. Um, that's something which I think we need to be working towards. It's obviously, you know, in most unions today, we're very, very far away from being able to have that kind of organization. But I think that kind of rank and file organization is, is really crucial precisely because in our unions, we have, you know, at the top of these organizations, a layer of people who are full-time elected or uh, appointed or hired um, people, you know, whether they're uh, elected officers or, or staff, um, who as a group, because they're not actually you know, doing the work that the majority of people in the union are, are doing, right? Their, their social conditions are different. Their interests are ultimately different as a, as a layer of people because um, they need the union as an institution to continue to operate in order for them to have their full-time positions. And so defending the union as an institution, uh, including its bank accounts, uh, becomes ultimately really paramount for them, uh, regardless of what that might mean for the workers themselves. And uh, so there are real pressures on people who occupy those positions to act in ways that will keep the union as a bureaucratic institution going, uh, regardless of the, you know, what, what kind of collective agreements people are, are um, working under, regardless of what conditions people have in the workplace. And so I think here we can look at the role of the QP national leadership in trying to put on the brakes um, as, you know, in, in those terms. It wasn't because Mark Hancock, QP national president as a, as a person is, you know, particularly egregious or something like that, um, that rather it's people in, who occupy those positions um, in the top of the union officialdom have those distinctive interests. Uh, and it's it's interesting to note that, again, in this article that was in The Breach, uh, it's reported that there was later on after the strike in late November, a, a large meeting of, of QP, a large number of, of staff um, and top officials meeting. And in that meeting, apparently Mark Hancock said, I think what we did was motivate the workers too well uh, talking about the OSBCU strike. Um, and the article goes on to say that then he was challenged from the floor by a, a QP staffer who'd worked with the education workers um, who said, in fact, no, we need to be able to be a fighting labor movement. And there was massive applause for that person who'd um, spoken out, like actually ultimately against their boss. <laughs> um, and that tells us something about 
the way that the struggle of the OSBCU actually had an impact on um, on staff, I think, in, in inside QB. So it's interesting to see some of the, the tensions uh, that were created there. Then ultimately, the OSBCU went back to the bargaining table and negotiated a collective agreement, which was ratified. Could you just summarize what you know about the settlement that they got at the bargaining table? Yeah, um, and Laura Walton and others have talked a lot about it. And you can see, you know, I think I, you know, I I get the way they expressed, you know, both what was good about it and what was frustrating about it. Um, And and I think reflected, you know, sort of like, oh, geez, we, you know, that that moment is gone, unfortunately. Um, But I think it was huge for them to get, and I think lots of people are excited about getting a like a dollar raise like they said like we didn't want to go percentages we're getting a do- and we're and and every worker in that OSBCU got a one dollar an hour raise which is quite you know quite robust especially considering what the government was offering um it sounds like they maintained um paid sick leave stuff that they'd wanted and the benefits funding from what I understand I could be wrong on that though um but they were very disappointed, I think, around job security language, which um, including things like having an ECE in every kindergarten classroom um, and some other stuff around like replacing um, leaving workers and stuff like that, which just means that there'll be, you know, which is the, re- the reality is, is that there's not going to be a guaranteed protection that, you know, the services that students and schools need will be there in the future. Right. And it's, and, and that was, that was the drawback. Um, and the, the government really seized on the fact that it's like, wait, you guys were just talking about money before. Now you want to talk about services. I don't get it. Like you're happy with the dollar, but what's, you know, why are you talking about these services now? And so, you know, it was the case where they sensed that I think the public was like, all right, we backed you last time and now we're good. Okay. Let's get it going. Like, let's get back to normal. And of course, you know, some workers were were really excited about getting that dollar um, or felt that they couldn't win more at that time. They were scared of potentially being like locked, you know, goaded into another strike where the government didn't care and they just save money and hopefully they lose face in public. Like these are the arguments I heard from from different um, different workers in the, you know, that had voted on these things. Um, and we're worried that the government was just going to go, oh, sure. Yeah, go on strike like two weeks or three weeks before um before Christmas break, you're not going to get paid over break anyway, many of you, you know, depending on what job category you are, and we'll just wait you out and then ha ha ha, we'll save money, whatever. And so people were worried about that. Um, it was offered to the membership and uh, and they voted to, to keep it. And you could see, you know, in these places where people are discussing this tensions between, you know, people that were like, gosh, darn it, we could have, we could have had the world and or we can't we can't settle for anything less than what we said we'd take, you know, three dollars and twenty five cents an hour and stuff like that. And then you had tension between people that like, well, I think we did a good job and, you know, we kicked some butt and let's take this and let's keep building in the future. Right. And so those are arguments, I think, that I'm sure will be had within those spaces. And hopefully um, people will stay mobilized and organized to be able to build on this type type of stuff. And and we'll have to have those, you know, have lots of different tough conversations about about what we won, what we should have done, you know, strategy, tactics, goals. How can we be better next time? Can we be stronger? Um, have those things within their union and hopefully build that stronger. Um, of course, the backdrop to that is that, you know, the Tories do seem like, you know, the conditions under which, you know, um, those people are working are still going to be hard. And that's, and the reality is like, like um, Laura Walton and other representatives from OSBCU were saying is like, well, you will have attrition um, when people can't make ends meet um, in these jobs and people will be less likely to pick up, you know, supply stuff like, you know, supply um, uh, EA jobs and, and things like that and, and may look for other things. So those are the realities too, that again, the public needs to be aware of that if we don't fund, you know, education to the degree that we need to, it's not going to be as good as we need it to be. Um, and so that's, I think, the reality going forward. Yes. So when we look at what happened and assess it, I think, uh, as you said earlier, there was a historic victory won by forcing the government to actually do a 180 degree turn and repeal this legislation that they had brought in, um, imposing a contract and invoking the uh, notwithstanding clause in order to protect the legislation from any legal challenge. And so, you know, it's there's certainly been other cases where, although it's not very common, there have been cases of, of workers defying 
legislation uh, to be able to defy legislation and actually force the repeal of the legislation. That was a historic win, even if then, unfortunately, what was um, negotiated in terms of the collective agreement wasn't, you know, wasn't that great. Um, and so I think it is easy to forget when we look back at the situation, as I mentioned earlier, about how, just how fluid things were and what, how there were all sorts of possibilities that workers could have tried to take advantage of. Um, John Clark, a Toronto-based uh, socialist who for many years was an organizer with the Ontario Coalition Against Poverty, wrote an article published on November the 13th in The Breach in which he wrote, if QP, with the full support of its allies, had responded to Ford's offer by informing him that there was no basis for calling off the strike, but that an offer that addressed its demands would be considered, the threat of a concessionary settlement would have been much less than it presently is. Moreover, the role of the education worker struggle as a catalyst for broader united action in the face of the cost of living crisis would have been assured. Larry Savage, who teaches labor studies at Brock University, uh, wrote that, or I guess his quote was quoted in an article saying uh, that the key question is what power and leverage at the bargaining table was potentially abandoned when the decision was made to take down the picket lines. And I'll just also mention that Sam Gindon, a former researcher with the Canadian Auto Workers, in an analysis of the strike, uh, wrote that, and this was, I thought, an interesting idea, uh, that the leaders of OSBCU could have uh, responded to Ford's November the 8th press conference by saying that they would need some movement on the staffing question um, before they would end the strike and return to the bargaining table. Sorry, re- return, end the strike and, and return to the workplace. So given those kind of thoughts, do you have anything you'd like to add beyond what you've already said about um, what was possible, other tactics that might have been chosen and that kind of thing? Oh, no. Well, I guess I've read all those articles and I definitely agree with all that. You know, all of those things uh, absolutely seem true to me. Right. That, you know, there's a lot more that could have been won, I think. Um, and employing some of the those things that they described, especially like what John Clark said, um, would could definitely, I think, have done some of that stuff. Right. You could even imagine, uh, you know. Uh, you know, I won't say too much, but like a whole, you know, different change in uh, in what was going on in government based on on some of that pressure. Right. Um, and those are things that unfortunately didn't happen. Um, and so I do think, you know, anticipating that, realizing the pressures that we're under, there's a few things that I think for those of us that are interested in those kind of results um, that are very important Uh to understand, like, you know, I think on one side, one hand, it's like to lead is to foresee, right? And so if we want to be, you know, we, we can, those of us that are, and it's great that we're having podcasts like this and articles like you've described, um, because we can assess what happened and anticipate what we need to do to go forward. We know that we need, as you mentioned, I, I thought you summed it up really well. Um, we need more, we need stronger rank and file action that can take independent action of the leadership, or at least can force the leadership to be account be even more accountable to the members, right? Where there wouldn't have, you know, it wouldn't have been a thought that you could you could make any of these decisions with without um, the input of all the all the members. Um, and and uh, you know, when we see these things on the horizon, we need to be making solidarity possible um, for everyone, right? Like making it. I think in the article I wrote something like easy and everywhere and very visible, right? Um, you know, there's something for everyone to do, even if we're not in that direct bargaining unit and there's ways to plug into all that type of stuff. And, and I think that's what I've appreciated about, for instance, the justice for workers campaign, because people are like, well, I work, you know, I'm one person that works at a, works at a, at a cafeteria or whatever, you know, like a, like a food, what do you call it? Food court. Um, I have a sense that, you know, I'm into like, you know, labor rights and stuff like that, but I don't know what to do. I don't have a union. What do I do? You can plug into this and you can meet people that are on that wavelength, people that can help you unionize, people that can help you plug into activity that will raise the conditions for everyone, you know, like political demands on like, you know, the, the, um, what do you call that? The uh, Employment Standards Act, stuff like that. Um, There's stuff for all of us to do to be able to plug into that, get connected and then build solidarity for others, knowing that we think that an injury to one is an injury to all. So let's help this group of workers win. Let's help these carpenters win because that's going to have an effect on education workers. Let's help these education workers um, win because that's going to help teachers, you know, and so forth. Building that kind of culture and that kind of like political movement and network, I think is so important um, because it'll have that effect and it'll give confidence to, to people that 
to leaders, um, you know, like Laura Walton and stuff like that, that want to do the right thing. Um, but, you know, of course, might feel pressure in, in different regards, right? All kinds of different pressure that exist in our society. And so we want to give confidence to the best of them, uh, to the best of our leaders to act in a great way. And we want to be able to act independently um, as workers, you know what I mean? Where you can, you know, do the kinds of stuff that we know that the kind of stuff that like John Clark and others have described can help us win in a really, really big, meaningful way. But I think finally, the last, the, the thing that's really important about what John Clark says that, you know, the, the thing he talked about, um, you know, building this sort of wider sense of, of class power, it didn't happen to the degree that we wanted to, of course, but it did like, it brought that stuff back to the table. And I think it was OPSU leader JP Hornick, I think hopefully I said their name right, um, that said at the press conference, they said, um, you know, if you come for one for one of us, you come for all of us and workers in this province will shut it down when we have to, you know what I mean? That kind of thing. And I thought that was, that's pretty powerful for someone to say and to have that language out there, right? Like, um, because it is the case that we showed we could potentially do that given the right circumstances. And, and, and the education that so many people in the province got, workers and, and people outside unions and all this type of stuff, got was uh, something, you know, once, well, hopefully more than once, but something that's sort of really special that doesn't come around all that, all that time. And I think there'll be a whole, whole generation of activists and, and people that are, that are interested in this type of stuff that'll be able to study this moment. They'll have this moment as something to look at and be like, okay, what, what went right? What went wrong? How could we change it? What are we going to do next time? And so many people were drawn, like, and people in this union, right? Like, think about the people in the union. They had to be out there arguing with their family, with their coworkers, all this type of stuff, like in the OSBCU, about what they thought was right, politicizing themselves and becoming, again, a new generation of leaders um, in the union movement. And that's so important, right? They went through that experience. And I'm sure some of them are hurting and some of them are feeling great about it. And there's lots of mixed feelings, but they had this experience that they can learn from and then you know, as, as I'm sure changed them in, in many ways uh, to different degrees for different people. But those are people that can now be out there making arguments about what needs to be done next, what they do differently and how they could change it. And they've been activated through this whole thing. Like as uh, Laura Walton was saying, um, since 2019, you know, like that deep organizing that they're doing, getting people involved. And you can see like talking to different people from different locals, like the kind of engagement and excitement and, and the, the feeling that they had of, of receiving solidarity from the public when, you know, if you're an EA in a school can feel kind of, kind of, uh, kind of uh, atomized, right? You know, I'm just this one person. I follow around one student during the day and help them with their tasks. You know, sometimes I'm, I'm not in the mix, but like all of a sudden it's like, wow, I'm really important. And everyone's talking about what I do and what I do matters and what I vote matters. And these arguments that I have are important. I think that's so huge for the future of the labor movement in Ontario. And hopefully we can generalize some of the best lessons and the things we want fixed um, for the future because we want other people to learn from this too. And uh, I appreciate uh, just having this chat with you too because I feel like I'm thinking about things and I'll go back and think about things differently and talk to people and everybody about this and try and figure out what's next, you know? Well, thanks very much because you've, I think, really spoken eloquently to the importance of the, the process of collective action, the process of struggle in how we change right? Uh, through that experience, there's nothing that can substitute for that uh, transformative experience of, of mass struggle. Um, that's a, a fundamental point that, uh, fundamental, fundamental Marxist point, I think, that uh, we need to be generalizing and, and sharing. And by talking about it today, we've given people hopefully a resource that they can use uh, to educate themselves and, you know, discuss with other people, because, we really do need to learn from these experiences of struggle when they haven't, because as you've said, they are so, so precious and all too rare. So thanks very much for joining me on Victor's Children today. Yeah, thanks. It was really fun. Appreciate it. That's it for this episode of Victor's Children. I'd like to thank Jonathan Croker, the producer of Victor's Children, without whom the podcast wouldn't be possible. I'd also like to thank Posey Legg, who designed the graphic for Victor's Children. If you found the episode worth listening to, please do tell other people about the show, since word-of-mouth recommendations are especially helpful. If you don't subscribe through your preferred podcast app, please do. And while you're there, please give the show a high rating. It helps to promote us. If you have a suggestion for an episode or some other kind of constructive feedback, feel free to be in touch with me you can contact me through victorschildren at gmail.com.